How many of you have already shoveled or blown snow? I tried to get a head start on it last night, but I think when I got up this morning, I realized I lost. So I have a busy afternoon. Well, we are studying uh, the book of Romans, and I just, I'm hoping that you're reading it. This, this is probably the greatest document that has ever been written. It has impacted the world. It has impacted millions of people. Paul probably preached this entire book in a number of places that he went to. One writer says, this is really just a very long sermon. But we're going to take uh, nine weeks to go through the first eight chapters. And I hope as we go through it, you have a greater understanding of the gospel especially. Here's the, here's the theme of the book. It's found in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone that believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. And then he says, here's why I'm not ashamed of it. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. In other words, when you, when you first embrace that righteousness, when you're justified and you receive Jesus Christ, from faith to faith, so that, so that as you begin to live your life, that same faith you exercise to receive Jesus, now you apply every day by faith. You believe in the promises of God. You believe in this righteousness that's been provided for you from faith to faith. And then he quotes Habakkuk. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. That's how we're to live. We're going to have a whole sermon just on faith. And it's learning to live by faith. That, that brings you to Christ and that also causes you to grow in Christ. So when, when I read Scripture, my method of reading Scripture is I'm looking for a promise. <laughs> because I'm going to lay hold of that promise. And, and that promise usually goes against the flow of all the advice that's coming at me in the world. And all the advice that's coming at me in the world is pretty much saying to me, this is how you should live. And the Word of God comes along and says, no, here's the promises of God, and you can trust God. And if you trust God that you can't see, and, and you'll believe those promises, I promise to bless you. I was talking to my sister yesterday. And I'm from a family of seven. I'm sixth out of seven. Two years before I was born, my parents came to Christ. And it changed our family. And my mom is the only one at, the, at that time. She was the only one that knew Christ, came to Christ. And then my dad, he was the only one. 
And then slowly, slowly, that gospel worked its way out to my older siblings. And then by the time I was born, I was born into a Christian family. My older sister, two years before, she, she came in just when they had received Christ. And then four years later, my little brother. And we read the scripture. This was, this was my parents' creative way of Bible study every night. We read one chapter every night. <laughs> that was it. I think I actually learned to read reading the Bible. But one of the things that I've learned is, is there were promises in there, and my parents claimed those promises. And because of that, we learned to live by faith. And, and my sister said to me yesterday, she said, she said, John, God has blessed us. He has blessed us immensely. Why? Because the just shall live by faith based on the promises of God. Faith, the, the only genuine faith is based on a promise that God has made. Faith is not a leap in the dark. You can't just say, oh, I have faith that this will work out. Not unless God said it would work out. That's just a hope and a, you know, that's wishful thinking. And then, and then here's, here's what we're talking about in the first three chapters of the book of Romans. It's verse 18. So after he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believes, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, then, then he flips it. He looks at the other side of the coin, and here's what he says, verse 18. He says, for the wrath of God... See... The gospel is revealed. <laughs> in, it, the, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. But now in verse 18, he says, something else is revealed. He says, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, for the next three chapters... He's not going to talk about the good news. He's going to talk about the bad news. Because the good news is only good news if you know the bad news. So here is how this truth of God is being suppressed. It's not suppressed just in one way. It's suppressed in three ways. Some suppress it with rebellion. All right? Some suppress it with rebellion. And that was our first week. We talked about how rebels think. If, if you say to a rebel, you know, Jesus loves you, they're like, great, let's go to the bar. If you, if you say to the second group, which is, the hypocrites, the moralists, they suppress the truth with their hypocrisy. If you say to them, you know, Jesus loves you, they're like, well, of course. <laughs> I mean, come on, look at me. Why wouldn't he? Today we're going to talk about a group that suppresses the truth. And people don't think about this. Because people think of religious people as people in pursuit of the truth. 
But Paul makes the point, beginning in chapter 2, verse 17, that there's a whole group of people that suppress the truth with religion. With religion. And, and, and if you say to them, Jesus loves you, they're like, well, of course he does. We're special. We're chosen by God. We, you know, I talked about in the kids' message this morning, we have an advantage. In Jesus' day, it was the nation of Israel. They thought they had an advantage. We have an advantage. Don't you understand? I hate to tell you this, but today it's Christians. It's, it's the, the religious people, at least the people who are close to the truth of the God, of God, are the people who have a Bible. In, in the days in which Paul was writing this, it was the nation of Israel. They had a Bible. Who has the Bible today? Churches. Christian schools, homeschoolers. And, and you know what I see? I see whether you're talking about the Jews in Paul's day or the church today, there, there is a misunderstanding, a giant, giant misunderstanding of this wonderful advantage that we have. Well, let's, let's look at um, some questions. I've got some questions for you this morning about how religious people think. Here's the first question. So in chapter 2, verse 17, you can go ahead and put that up. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew. So as I was looking at that, I thought, what does it mean? Who is Paul talking to? Is he talking to all the people of Israel? And I concluded, he's actually not. He's not talking to all the people of Israel. For instance, he's not talking to the Galileans. <laughs> That's for sure. Because the Galileans were despised by the Jews. When, when you read the word Jew in the gospel, it's usually those who are totally against Jesus. And if you do a word study on it, what you'll find is the word Jew comes from the word Judea. And so when, when you see the word Jew, you're talking about the Judeans. They're the leaders. Here's, here's who the Jews are. Here's, this is who Paul is addressing. They're the leaders who run the temple and the synagogues. They're the leaders. I actually concluded, I went back and, and reread the first, you know, uh, 16 verses. And there's a shift from chapter 1. In chapter 1, here's, here's, the, here's the word Paul uses. But they, they, they. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, but you. So, so he's shifting. And I concluded that the moralists... We're really uh, the moral people in the world, including the Greeks, including the Romans, and including the Galileans. 
it was the it was the average Jew on the street, if you will. Because they were always called Galileans, and they were always despised by the Judeans or by the Jews. Again, if you look at the ministry of Jesus, the people that hounded him the most were the Jews. If you read the book of Acts, you'll find that the Judeans, representatives sent by people from Jerusalem, were the ones always hounding Paul. So who are we talking about here? Again, they are the leaders who run the temple and the synagogues. I was telling Mark, I read uh, one of the best books I've read in 10 years. It's called The Maker Versus the Takers. How Jesus really felt about economics and social justice. And the author points out that Jesus never castigated. He never denounced wealthy people in Galilee. Because the Galileans were entrepreneurs and businessmen, most of the disciples were running family businesses. You'll never find Jesus denouncing wealth in Galilee because they are the makers. You know where he denounces wealth? Anytime he is in or near Judea. Because he's talking to the ruling class. And who are the ruling class? They're the ones who run the temple, and they're the ones who lead the synagogue. In fact, one of the parables that he takes apart, which I've never seen before, is Lazarus and the rich man. (laughs) And he makes a point, I don't have time to go into it all, but Notice the rich man was arrayed in purple and linen. That he was rejoicing by the lamp. That he wants Lazarus to he wants he wants God to send Lazarus to go and warn his five brothers. All those are pictures of of the high priest at the time of Jesus. Caiaphas wearing purple and fine linen. Caiaphas rejoicing in the lamp in the holy place. Caiaphas, the son-in-law of Ananias. And Ananias had five other sons, and Caiaphas is related to these five sons. And then finally, Lazarus is sitting at the gate, at the portico of what? Of the temple. And here's here's the request by the rich man. Go and warn my brothers. And God says, they have Moses and the prophets. And he says, oh, and by the way, even if one rose from the dead, they wouldn't believe him. Jesus had just raised who? Lazarus. So, so I just want to point out here who this religious group of people are. They are the ones who operated the temple system, which was corrupt, and stealing money from the poor, 
Do you know that you, if, if you went to have your money changed to make an appropriate sacrifice, if you, if you paid them, a, if, if you wanted a dollar, you had to pay them two dollars. It was a hundred percent upcharge. And, and, and they were scamming. There's a really good point, and, and I know that Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth, and it was all God's plan for Jesus to die. But, but what prompted the leaders to want to do away with Jesus was that he was going to destroy their economic system, their corrupt economic system. System. So, so the reason, as we go through here, I'll show you why I think when he's talking to this religious group, he's talking specifically to those who are leaders and who are taking advantage of the people that they're actually supposed to be helping. Not unlike Washington, D.C., Secondly, what do they claim? Verses 17 through 20. Let's just go through that. Verses 17 through 20. Here are their claims. This, this is a claim of this, this ruling class. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, here, here are some things that they do. This is, these are some claims that they have. They boast in God. We're God's people. What was, what was their argument with Jesus? We're children of Abraham. <laughs> Don't you know who we are? They boast in God. They suppose to know his will. They approve of what is excellent. We'll tell you what's good and what's bad. Because you are instructed from the law. They, they had the law. They were instructed in the law. They had very rigorous training in the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. This, this is the one, by the way, that kind of reinforces the idea that we're talking about the ruling class in Jerusalem and in Judea. Because the the people in Scripture referred to by Isaiah, the people that were living in darkness, were the Galileans. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It was the upper and lower Galilee. It was the land of, it was the land of uh, Naphtali and Zebulun, two northern tribes. The northern tribes were the first to go into captivity. Here's what's amazing. Jesus brought the light first to the darkest area because he settled in lower Galilee. But, but here's what these Judeans are thinking. We're, we're instructing those dumb Galileans, those who are living in darkness. An instructor of the foolish a teacher of children or of immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So these were their claims. 
All these eight or nine claims, these are their claims. Now, verses 21 through 24. Those are their claims. That's what they say. (laughs) What are their secrets? What are their secrets? In other words, what's going on with them that they're hiding, that no one knows about, that no one's bringing to the surface? Verses 21 through 24. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Do you not teach yourself? In other words, what good would it be for me to teach you about how to live and not be following my own instruction? Do you not teach yourself... While you preach against stealing, thou shalt not steal. Do you steal? Absolutely they steal. They were the wealthy. They were the elite. They lived in fine houses in the upper part of Jerusalem. And how were they doing it? Not from anything that they were making, but from what they were taking from others, especially the poor. You who say, one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? A couple things here. They could be committing adultery two ways. One, by looking on a woman. Remember Jesus defined in the Sermon on the Mount, if you look and lust after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. That would be one way. And if you want insight into the Orthodox Jewish community, read, read The Chosen by Chaim Potak. It, it, his books were eye-opening to me because behind all of that religious garb, their hearts were just as dark as everyone else's. So that would be one way, because they would be lusting after women. It also could be, because adultery in the scripture is adulterating, and it's adulterating the truth about God. And they certainly were doing that. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? This is a very interesting phrase. It kind of troubled me all week long. I can't tell you how much reading I did on you who rob temples. The King James said, you who commit sacrilege, which, which means corrupting holy things. I actually think, although there, there's, a, there's one instance by Josephus in which he says there was a rich aristocratic Gentile woman, and a group of priests talked her into donating a great sum of money for the sake of the temple. And she went ahead and did that. And then they took the money and split it among themselves. So it could be that. It could be that, that because Gentiles, and especially Gentile women and and aristocratic Gentile women, they were drawn to Judaism because Judaism had a high moral, even if it was even if it was external, and high ethical system. So they were drawn to it. 
So many times, they would actually support synagogues, and they would give money to the temple. But I really do think this is a reference to just the whole scam that was taking place at the temple. They were robbing. They were robbing. They weren't just robbing people. They were, they were robbing God. Because it wasn't their money. It was God's. One of the things that uh, Jerry Bauer points out in his book, which I referred to earlier, is he says, he says, he uses that phrase, you know, where Jesus said, the poor you always have with you. The poor you always have with you. You know that phrase? So I've always took that as, I guess, well, the poor you always have with you. <laughs> That's what that means. After reading that book, I realized that this is the way you should say, say that statement. The poor, he's, he's addressing the, the Judeans, the poor you always have with you. Why? Because you're, you're contributing to their poverty. You boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Interesting passage here, because this was actually spoken by uh, Isaiah when the people of Israel, it's a quote from Isaiah, and when the people of Israel were in captivity in Babylon, and the Babylonians were like, their God, their God, not so special, we have them in captivity. What Paul does here is he redirects it. And he says, now, any time, because of, don't you know that the Romans living in Jerusalem who are controlling the city, don't you know they watch you? Don't you see? Don't you understand that they also know how corrupt you are? Don't you think that, that the Romans... The Gentiles not only blaspheme you, but blaspheme the God that you claim to represent. Boy, I, I have to tell you, of all the ones about the secrets here, this was the most disturbing to me because I realized, for instance, all, all kinds of people, students from all over the world, come to this so-called Christian nation and, and they hear about Christianity, and they hear about, you know, the basis of this country, and then they encounter many people who call themselves Christians. <laughs> and they say, you have the truth? <laughs> this is your God that instructs you to live this way? Do you know, uh, secrets here is a very scary thing because in verse 16 of Romans 2, it says, Someday all people, rebels, moralists, and religious people, will stand before Jesus Christ and be judged. And, and Jesus will not only judge their behavior, he will judge their thoughts, their secrets. Remember I told you 
that there's a set of books, and in that set of books, in which everyone will be judged, whose name is not found, written in the book of life, they will be judged not only by their activity, but by their secrets. There's a record being kept. And Jesus is the judge. Number four, question number four. Question, question number one, who are these religious people? What do they claim? What are their secrets? Number four, what is their justification? What is their justification? Mark, you might remember this. In the early 70s, Campus Crusade had a campaign called I Found It. Do you remember I Found It? <laughs> I found it. So they, you'd get a yellow bumper sticker with black letters. You put it on your bumper, and it said, I Found It. And, and basically it was to, to provoke a conversation with people. I found it. What would you find? I found Jesus. The Jews in response to that, you know what? They, they came up with a bumper sticker. You know what it was? We never lost it. <laughs> we never lost it. Because, because here's, here's their justification. Verses 25 through 29. You can look at it up on the screen there. I'm not going to read it all, but I'm, I'm just going to summarize it for you. Here's, here's their justification for claiming to be right with God. Number one, we have the law. God gave us the law. Number two, we have circumcision. We have circumcision. Today, the equivalent of circumcision would be baptism. You're in Europe where nobody goes to church. Every child still gets christened and baptized. I can't, when I was pastoring in Naperville, Catholic grandparents would come in, the young couple would be believers, and, and the couple would come to me and say, could you please baptize our baby? <laughs> because my grandparents, my parents think if he isn't baptized, he's going to hell. See, it's this, it's this, this external mark. And here's, here's, what, here's how Paul answers them. Yes, you have the law, but you don't practice the law. It's not profession. That doesn't, that doesn't make you possess the law. It's, it's actually living out the promises of God. See, the moment, you, the moment you receive Jesus Christ, you have a whole new relationship with God's commands. Prior to receiving Christ, you didn't want God's commands. The moment you come to Christ, there's a, there's a switch that's flipped in your heart, and now you want to do the will of God. That's genuine possession. And then secondly, baptism or circumcision is only beneficial not as an external sign, because even baptism is a picture of something that has happened to you when you receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And then quickly, I'm going to close, and I'm going to close with eight verses, very quick. But please study them. We're not going to, we're not even going to read them. 
Number five, and, and this is in chapter three, verses one through eight. And here's the question. What are their questions? <laughs> One of the things that Paul encountered regularly was a group of Jews from Jerusalem following him around, challenging everything that he said. So the first eight verses of chapter 3 are what the ancients called a diatribe. A diatribe is a conversation that, that a speaker has with a dialogue partner who's not there. But they're able, they're able to raise the questions because they've had the conversation so many times before. So, so what Paul does in the, in the first eight verses of chapter 3 is he tells you about conversations that he's had with these Jews who've been following him around and challenging his message. So after, after hearing chapter 2, verses 17 through 29, those four questions, here's the first question that comes up in chapter 3 in this diatribe. So, the, so the, the imaginary dialogue partner would say this, so then what is the advantage of being a Jew? To put it in context, what's the advantage of coming to church? What is the advantage of being brought up in a Christian family? What's the advantage of all these things that we do, of being baptized? What's the advantage? You know, there's an advantage of being born in a Christian family, and there's a disadvantage. <laughs> you know that? Because you take so much for granted. I have a friend who lives on the North Shore. And he said, he said something I've never forgotten before. He said, you know, John, children who are born on the North Shore are born on third base and they think they hit a triple. They're born on third base and they think they hit a triple. What does that mean? It means they take it for granted. They think they deserve it. So, so here is Paul's answer, verse 2. You know what the advantage is? You were given the very oracles of God. You had the Bible. You know what the advantage of, of being a Christian today? You got this! <laughs> I used to go visit people in their homes, and, and I'd knock at the door, and, and you know... I, I could just see them scrambling around because I know they were trying to find a Bible in case I asked for it. Why did God, do you know why God gave them this advantage? So that they could be a light to the Gentiles. See, a true Israelite would have been someone who shared the message of the gospel with the nations, because that's why God called them. A true Christian understands that you have been given this advantage, not just because the grace of God is abundant to you, but so that you can share it with the world. Here's the reasoning. Since God chose us and gave us his covenant promise, and now you tell us that we're under God's wrath, just like the Gentiles, doesn't that mean that God's unfaithful? 
In other words, we're supposed to be the covenant of God. Now you're telling us we're not the covenant of people of God. Doesn't that make God unfaithful? You know what Paul's answer is? <laughs> no, 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 no. Let God be true and every man a liar. If you disagree with God, if you defame his character, guess what? You're the liar. And they go on. If our unrighteousness demonstrates God's righteousness, doesn't that make him unrighteous since it seems to encourage our bad behavior? <laughs> There's a lot of Christians that say, I'm safe now. I can get away with stuff. And in fact, when I get away with stuff, that just emphasizes God's grace. Did you ever notice? This is what I've noticed. I've been a believer since I was eight years old. So that means nearly 62 years. Do you know what I've noticed about religious people? Religious people always have warped theology. It's warped. It's always crazy. I'll talk to some religious person that's counting on their religion, and they'll tell me their explanation of Scripture, and I'll go, Really? Seriously? You think that you can bring God glory and emphasize His grace by sinning against Him? Then he goes, um, if through my life the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I being judged as a sinner? God, God doesn't have the right to judge me. And then finally, he's, this imaginary person says, Paul, don't you preach and teach, let us do evil that good may come. See how warped the thinking is? See what religion does to the truth? You see, you see how it maligns and perverts and twists? I have to tell you something. I hate religion. You know what religion is? Religion is an attempt to make yourself noble before God. You know what it's about? It's about a relationship. It's about coming to Jesus. Something hit me this week. Something hit me. Do you know what Paul is? Paul is the nation of Israel. <laughs> you know what Paul's doing? He's doing what the nation was supposed to do. Isn't it amazing that God took this so-called perfect Jew turned him around because he was just as twisted and made him an apostle to the Gentiles. Isn't that what Israel was supposed to be? Paul defined his Jewishness by taking the message to the Gentiles. He says, you want to know my Jewishness? I have a message from God that I'm taking to the nations. Let me ask you a question. Do you define your Christianity that way? Do you define your Christianity? I have this advantage so that I can take a message to those who are disadvantaged, who are walking in darkness, who have no idea that they're under the wrath of God and someday they're going to stand before Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you, Lord. We can never get over, Lord, how much you love us, how much you've done for us. To you, O Lord, belongs glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.